My name is Dan Wallace. I am the CEO and Executive Director of the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts in Plano, Texas. Dr. Dan Wallace, great to see you back here at the Lanier Theological Library. Welcome, Dan. Dr. David Capes, it's good to be here. <laughs> it's it's always good to be be around you, and you're going to be doing a wonderful lecture here, I believe. I'm saying that so before that it's so. I'm going to do a lecture. You're going to be a lecture. Well, it's, it's going to be wonderful, I'm sure, because I've heard you lecture before, entitled Formatting the Word of God, and we're going to talk a little bit about that in this particular episode. For those who can't be here tomorrow night, or for those who maybe would like to be here, like to kind of get an epitome of what you're going to be talking about, formatting the Word of God exactly. The Bible, from the very beginning, has had certain formatting to it. It it has to, actually. Every literary product has to. For example, how wide should the margins be for a text? I mean, how wide should the text be? Is it going to go on for three feet on a papyrus roll. No, there's some formatting. Mm. And even that formatting helps us with interpretation. It's kind of a pre-interpretive thing. So let me just take that as an example. Okay. On a papyrus roll, or say a codex, which is our modern book form bound on one side, and you know you have the cut pages. The codex is something, as a book, that those who are under 30 years old may not recognize because they always scroll on their computer. So they go retro on us, you know. Uh-huh. So, But <laughs> exactly. that really is a real book, folks, so you uh-huh. need to think about that. Go so, to any library and you'll be able to see a few of those. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Just about any library, yeah. So when you think in terms of a codex and you think of how wide the text is on a page, well, we don't just have one column necessarily. We even have books, especially Bibles, that are in two columns, especially larger Bibles. Why is that? Because it makes it easier to read in public without losing your place. That goes all the way back to ancient, ancient times. And so we have uh, manuscripts or uh, New Testament books that were selections of reading that were typically, they're called lectionaries, they were typically in two columns, and they were sung in these services. It was amazing how this was done, but they're large format. A single column text is more likely going to be something that is read in private. And so even the way they format just how many columns they have on the page tells us how it was used. The formatting goes in a number of other directions too. For example, there are words that are abbreviated in the manuscripts, and they are called nomina sacra, Mm. or sacred names, holy names. Now, these included names for God, but they also included a number of others like Jerusalem and David. And David, in fact, is abbreviated where you have the delta, alpha, delta in the genealogy of Matthew. Mm. And you read that in Greek and it says dad. (laughs) (laughs) But they would read it as David. So there were 15 of these nomina sacra that were standardized several centuries into the Christian era. But from the beginning, there were four. And these could be called nomina divina. And when I say from the beginning, 
our very earliest manuscripts from the second century have these nomina divina in them. Mm-hmm. And, and almost always do they have them. They are the words Christ, Lord, Jesus, and God. Mm-hmm. Now, what does that tell you about these early scribes, even in the second century, what they thought of Jesus? Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ is Lord and God. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's remarkable. I'll show some uh, pictures of manuscripts, some purple codices that are sumptuous, deluxe manuscripts, and how they put these words in gold letters, these abbreviations, Mm -hmm. and why they used abbreviations instead of the full words, what was the implication. But one implication for sure that we all recognize is that the early church, the ancient church, believed that Jesus was God incarnate. And for anybody to say they didn't think so is just not even dealing with any of the You've got that material evidence that's right there in front of you. Very strong material evidence. The name Jesus is being handled the same way the word God is. Right. right. The word Lord is, right? So, which are clearly divine names at that point. Yeah. So these interpretations are already being going on by the second century. Right. And so that's an interpretation where the scribes got it right. And the columns are telling you public versus pirate. Now, now, there's always some exceptions, but these are the basic trends that we see. And the larger format, of course, is going to be public. In a number of manuscripts, they have musical notes to show you how you should read this in public. But I met a musicologist who worked with medieval Greek manuscripts at the National Library of Greece several years ago. And we were photographing all of the New Testament manuscripts there, all 300 of them. And it was fascinating. I've, I've met a number of Greek musicologists that deal with these manuscripts and the musical notes. I don't know how they can read them, but they still do the same kind of thing in, in the monasteries today and the Orthodox churches. It's, it's really beautiful to see how they do this. So it's not just these kinds of things, but it's also, let's take the codex again as uh, an issue. The New Testament books were originally written all on scrolls or rolls. The codex form was invented, as far as we can tell, in the in the first century, late first century, but it almost was stillborn. By the second century, though, Christians adopted it. They adopted it wholesale. Every single New Testament manuscript we have, except for, I think, four of them, and of those four, I think at least three were written on the back of, backside of a roll, mm. are written on a codex. So if it's written on the back side of a roll, it's got like Homer on the front side. And so it's a reused roll that Christians just scribbled out their mm-hmm. text on the back side, some of it. For the first five centuries of the Christian era, 90% of all Christian manuscripts were written on a codex. And we could say for those first five centuries that virtually 100% of all New Testament manuscripts were written on a codex, except for the ones that you know are the back, mm-hmm. back of a roll. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile... For the rest of the world, less than 15% of the manuscripts are written on a codex. The book form was still the roll. The New Testament was originally written on a roll, and this may explain a number of things for us. For example, the ending of Mark. There are some who say that the ending of Mark, the real ending of Mark, is lost. Right. And that we have it at Mark 16.8 in our oldest manuscripts and in almost all the rest of the manuscripts you have verses 9 through 20. But scholars, uh, a number of scholars have said, Bruce Metzger included, that the real ending of Mark is lost. We don't know how he ended it because Mark 16 is not a fitting ending that the angel tells the women to go tell the disciples to meet him in Galilee, meet Jesus in Galilee. And they did nothing for they were afraid, period. 
Amen. That's the end <laughs> like of the book. Like the last word is fear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, right? it's, it's a real yeah. downer. Unless it's meant to be something where the, the individual reader steps into the sandals of the disciples and makes the gospel known under persecution times. But here's the point about all this. If Mark's gospel was originally written on a roll, that end of the gospel would be the most secure part. It would not have been lost. Mm-hmm. And only if it were originally on a codex could you say the end of Mark was lost. Ah, I see. I so see. just even the formatting of this makes significance. Mm-hmm. The book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 1, talks about the seven-sealed book, the seven-sealed scroll. And then in verse 3, John weeped because no one can open these seven seals. If you have a codex with seven wax seals on it, you could slice open that last wax seal without even reading the first parts and find out who done it, you know. <laughs> but on a roll, you can't. As you roll through it, you've got this long line of wax that's uh, keeping the next section closed. You have to read a section before you can get to the next section. So that tells us even Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, was written on a roll. Oh. And I think it gives us a clue about the authorship of Hebrews. Because we see ancient papyri where the addressee and the addressor are on the inside of the roll, Mm. but we also see them on the outside of the roll. Mm -hmm. And I'll show some pictures where if it's written on the outside, that very frequently gets rubbed off. And so that in later centuries, we can't see who it is. Mm -hmm. I take it that the author of Hebrews had this on the outside of the roll, could have been as an affixed label. But by the time the courier gets to where he or she is going, that label is gone. It's been rubbed off. And that's that why time. we don't know who it is. Actually, papyrus, the ink on papyrus, carbon-based, and it's more permanent than the ink that's used on parchment, which mm. was iron gall-based. And parchment, which starts out close to white or off-white, mm. becomes browner as time goes on. And the ink, which starts off close to black, because it's made of iron in part, it rusts and it turns brown. So you got dark brown on top of light brown. <laughs> but yeah. the papyri actually, mm. except for the wearing of the fibers, the ink is pretty strong. The ink is strong yeah. in there. Okay. So I want to transition to talk about modern Bibles. Modern Bibles, the way we format today. Yeah. I mean, because uh, you work with the NIV committee mm-hmm. and there's a lot of formatting and a lot of interpretation that goes on in giving us the modern Bible today. Right. That is a, almost like, as you said earlier, a pre-interpretation. Mm-hmm. So th- when we see that, that's entering into a long tradition that has already begun in the early centuries, right? It's, it's not that's as correct. if a modern editor's invented this process. They're sort of picking up on exactly. what had happened yeah. quite now, a while. Let me just take uh, one example here, and that's verse numbers. Uh-huh. When Paul's writing to the Romans, he doesn't start chapter 1, verse 1. <laughs> he doesn't have verse numbers. He doesn't have chapter numbers. Chapters for the New Testament came about by a man who became the Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton, in the 13th century. Mm. Verse numbers for the New Testament were not added until 1551 in a printed Greek New Testament by Robert Estian, or Stephanus is how he went by his Latin Mm. name. Mm. And I'll explain, I'm not going to do it now, but I'll explain (laughs) tomorrow night why verse numbers were introduced. But here's the thing that's relevant. Those verse numbers were written in the margin so that each new verse was indented, like it was its own paragraph. Now, this was in 1551, the first translation that was based on Stephanus' 
1551 Greek New Testament was the Geneva New Testament. And then 1560 was the whole Geneva Bible. They also indented each verse as though it were its own paragraph. Mm -hmm. The King James followed suit in 1611. And so when you read the King James Bible and you have each new verse indented, instead of having a paragraph as a unit, it makes it much, much easier to proof text where you wrench a verse out of its context and quote it without having any sense of what it means in its context. Mm -hmm. There have been some modern translations that follow that same tradition without understanding mm -hmm. how that tradition came about, and I'll talk about that. I remember the New American Standard Version yeah. did the same thing. And the, the, while it's a good translation in many ways, the very fact that every verse is a paragraph means it's difficult to read, I think. They intentionally follow the tradition of even the formatting of the King James Bible. They are in the stream of, of revisions of the King James. Mm -hmm. They also use italics for words that are not there. Right. In the King James Bible, they had this uh, frock tour, this Gothic script in the large King James versions of 1611. And for words that were not there, they put them in smaller script in italics. Now, it's the same size. But italics today don't mean, here's a word that's not there. It means, this is emphasized. So it means oh, today just exactly the opposite mm -hmm. of what it meant in 1611. Mm -hmm. And yet the New American Standard Bible perpetuates this. Great translation. And I think in later editions they have given it two different formats so you can have the verses in a paragraph. J.B. Phillips' New Testament actually has no verse numbers. It just has the paragraphs and, so, and, and the chapter numbers. But most translations don't follow the King James. They do it so you can read a verse in its context, which is what we always must do. Mm -hmm. So that's where the formatting can lead to misinterpretation. Mm -hmm. Not intentionally, no. but it's the, what ends well, up. Because as you said over time, the purpose of the italics changes. Right. It's no longer to be de-emphasized, you know, as it <laughs> were. The opposite it's the, it's, we're going to emphasize that, right. you know. Pay attention to this because these these letters look a little differently. If they still had it in Gothic script for the New American Standard and italics were used for the words <laughs> not there, we'd say, oh, it's the Gothic. That's the stuff that's important. But they don't. So, they don't. Yeah. Exactly. So your lecture t tomorrow night is going to be available on our website, on the YouTube channel, and we want to drive all people to that, to see that. It's going to be great. It's going to be visually interesting. And I love the work that you're doing with manuscripts. You're working with this, the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, and that's something that at your, as CEO, you have developed that program. Mm -hmm. What's the mission of, of that? Tell us about that. CSNTM was started in 2002, so we've been going for 21 years. Wow. And our initial goal, not our primary goal, but our initial goal is to make sure that every single Greek New Testament manuscript on the planet is digitized and made available free for scholars, free for anybody, free for all time. By digitally preserving these manuscripts, we freeze them at a point in time. Since all manuscripts are made on degradable material, since mm -hmm. it's all organic, it's animals or plant-based, all of it. It, it, it's not going to stay the same over time. And even some of these early papyri that we are re-photographing that got photographed 90 years ago, those papyri that have been kept in glass plates, there's some material that has gone missing. Mm -hmm. 
Wow. Uh, which is startling. So yeah. we have those older plates, but our photographs are so much better, but sometimes it's, it doesn't have all the same text there. Mm-hmm. So that's our initial goal, which helps scholars to try to recover the wording of the original, which is our ultimate primary goal, is to help scholars in this endeavor to recover exactly the original text. Now, I don't want hearers to think that what we have is so far removed from the original. Actually, almost all scholars are very convinced that what we have is very, very close to the original text, just not exactly what the original text said. Mm. So a secondary goal after that primary one is to trace the transmission of the text through time. And uh, we're photographing certain ancient versions. Coptic in particular is one that we really like to photograph. It's an early ancient translation. Mm -hmm. And even through the printed text, we're photographing things. Uh, Last March, a year ago, we were at Lambeth Palace in London, which is the Archbishop of Canterbury's residence when he's in London, which is most of the time. And they are the keepers of all things Church of England. We photographed their Greek New Testament manuscripts, but they also had a, a handwritten partially handwritten. It was an interleaved bishop's Bible, which was one of the predecessors to the King James that James said, you have to base this authorized version on the bishop. What we saw were handwritten notes of the bishop's Bible on one side, and then notes about how we're going to change this towards the new authorized version. Hmm. This must have been done sometime between 1604, the Hampton Court, when James authorized a new translation, and 1611, when it was finally published. Wow. So we're seeing, actually, the King James translators in process, moving towards that King James version. That's fascinating. That's very that's cool. Yeah, that's yeah, actually It really cool. is interesting. Yeah. Now, you, you think that there are more manuscripts yet to be discovered. We've got 5,500, 5, almost yeah. 6,000 manuscripts out there. Uh, Greek, already? Just, just in Greek. Just yeah. in Greek. But there are more Greek manuscripts, you think, out there that we haven't found? Yeah, I'm sure there's plenty more. The estimates, on the basis of what we've been able to do, were uh, we almost every expedition we go on, CSNTM goes on to digitize manuscripts, and we're working strictly in libraries, museums, universities, sometimes private collections, but not digging around in Egypt. Of all the manuscripts that we're f- photographing at a certain location, about 10 to 15% of them are manuscripts that we are discovering while we're there. Wow. Now, that's incredible. By discovery, I need to qualify that. It can mean one of two things. It can either mean that the official cataloger in Munster, Germany, an institute that has since 1959 been in charge of numbering our Greek New Testament manuscripts, telling where they are in the world and all the... Uh, that's the authorized version, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the authorized version. It's the Bible for Bible hunters is mm-hmm. what it is. Mm-hmm. If they don't know about it, then we consider it a discovery. That library, that university, that museum may well know about the manuscript, but it hasn't been reported to Munster. Ah, okay. And that's about half of our discoveries. Hmm. The other things are, the other half are manuscripts that this institute did not know that they had that we discovered. And it could be a manuscript that's inside another manuscript. I'll talk about two copies of Hebrews tomorrow night, which will be hmm. really fun uh, <laughs> to, to deal with. But in, in one place in northern Greece, we found a manuscript. It was actually a printed book. And its dust jacket was an old parchment leaf from John chapter 8. And I'm thinking, the dust jacket is worth far more than this (laughs) printed book. 
we should slice the book open and get to see the backside, but they wouldn't let us do that. Let you do that. Okay. Yeah. Well, if people are interested in the work of the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, where do they need to go for about it? Well, csntm.org is our site. And you're probably looking for donations as well along the way. Oh, please. Yeah, yeah. we are. We've got lots of expeditions in the works. And it takes a lot of great equipment to be able to photograph yes. these yeah. because you're photographing not just under normal light. You're photographing sometimes a different spectrum of light so that you can see below a text, inside right. of a text. The equipment is very expensive to do this. Yeah, yeah. we use uh, state-of-the-art equipment for both digitization, 150 megapixel images that each equal one gigabyte. One gigabyte for one image. Wow. And we use multispectral imaging, which is, as the name implies, various spectra to find text that has been scraped off or is water damaged and you can't see it with normal means, even under ultraviolet light. Mm. We're really on the cusp of a new renaissance more discoveries of things that are in plain sight, but we just can't see them with the naked eye. Hidden in plain sight. Yeah, exactly. Dr. Dan Wallace, thanks for being with us today on the Stone Chapel. Yeah. Thank you, David. Hey, don't leave town before this podcast is over. The Lanier Theological Library in Houston is proud to bring you this podcast. We hope that you're finding some inspiration, some connection, some help, some new way of renewing your mind through these high-level conversations. If you're interested further in our guest, read the show notes carefully for ways to learn more about them and how to be in touch. Thanks to our Cracker Jack staff for their help in producing this podcast. They know who they are. Only 10,080 minutes left before the next podcast drops. I'm David Capes. Thanks for listening.